Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Today we have episode 303 for December 19th, 2022. Almost the end of the year. We are almost in 2023. Just so, so hard to believe this year has just flown by. Uh, and especially these last couple of months, man, it always seems that way. But uh, anyway, so today we've got kind of a different type of episode for you. Instead of a new show today, we're going to do a best of 2022. And what I want to do with this episode is is bring you not just some clips, some of my favorite clips from the past year, uh, which most of you, if you've been longtime listeners, have already heard. But I'm also going to sprinkle in today uh, some snippets from the bonus content that I have until now reserved strictly for my patrons. And so every week that I do a podcast, I also do a bonus podcast, basically a private podcast for my patrons. And depending on what level patron you're at, you'll either get one every week or you'll get one every other week. So I know this is not a new show. We're gonna have to wait on this, but there was a really big announcement from Apple. They're finally, finally, I've been complaining about this for a long time. They're finally going to allow users to control the encryption keys for the vast majority of the things that Apple backs up into iCloud. Not everything. We're going to, we'll talk about the details, but it, it goes much, much further than they had originally done. I am extremely pleased to see that this is finally happening. I'm not going to get into that today because we're, we're doing this best of episode, uh, but know that I will circle back to that for sure. And we will talk about that. So here's what we're going to do today. I am going to introduce each of these little clips and kind of give you some context because some of these will, you know, obviously jumping right in the middle of an interview or something like that. So uh, I'll, I'll set each of these up with a little bit of context and then I will play the clip. And I went back and it, it's really, really hard to go back over, you know, 52 weeks worth of material and try to listen to over an hour podcast of each one to pull out the clips that I like. But these are some really great clips from some of the interviews, mostly from interviews that I did over the year. And we're going to start off with one from the Tech Learning Collective. These guys, I forget how I found these guys, but they do some really great work. And I probably never would have heard for them had it not been for COVID because they are located in New York City and a lot of their classes are local. But they did, uh, I think they started expanding and doing more stuff online, or maybe that's just how I found them it, during the COVID period. And they've got some really, really great classes. And this one instructor who I've managed to have for all the classes, I'm not sure if this instructor teaches all of them, but I've had this person on my show a couple of times now, and I've taken a couple of classes from this instructor and always just fantastic. Just some really great explanations about how things work. And in this discussion you're about to hear next, uh, I was asking how the internet works and what some of its strengths and weaknesses are. And as always, the answer was just perfect. For one thing, we, we, you know, here certainly in the United States and probably a lot of the first world, you know, take the internet totally for granted. Not not just as its existence, but you know, but ubiquitous access to it. Right. And uh, you know, many of the courses you guys offer, you know, dive into the details uh, at some level, all the various protocols, you know, the things that make up today's internet. And you know, obviously, we can't cover that today. That's why you guys have classes. But um, <laughs> but for, to lay some foundation, you know, for our discussion that we're about to have, you know, can you maybe give us a very high level talk about the, the key things we need to understand? about you know, how the internet works and then sure. maybe you know you know while the internet was designed to be extremely resilient it still does have shortcomings so you know maybe what are some of the main weak points of today's internet 
Yeah, that's a really important place to start, right? And I think also it's important to point out that like, while a lot of us have what we would consider ubiquitous access to the internet, even in the States, and I think especially in the States, it's comparison to some other countries, right? Yeah. Like internet access is not as ubiquitous as we would like. And even in places where you have it, it might not be very or fast enough to be useful for the things that you're doing with it, right? And so like, there's a lot of importance in our classes especially, but also just in general to like understand what the internet is to talk about access before you talk about the actual failure modes and, you know, like yeah. packets and all this sort of like, you know, technical stuff, right? Just getting online is a huge hurdle for a lot of people. And of course, in uh, situations where, you know, you've got infrastructure that's degraded for any number of reasons, that's going to be even harder. The thing that I think makes uh, the internet, well, so the thing, the thing that makes the internet resilient that I think people overlook, right? And this is the thing that is perhaps maybe even the most the most important takeaway, right, from, for understanding the internet is that it's not really as, or it's, I should say, it's as much about agreements about how to communicate with one another as it is about the technology itself mm. and the infrastructure that powers it. So what I mean by that is like, you know, we are speaking the same language right now, human language, English. Um, mm -hmm. We both know it. And so we have some agreements about what words mean generally. We have mm -hmm. some agreements about like, you know, grammar. And this means this, this agreement called English, right, is the way that we can make meaning out of these sounds that we're, you know, talking, mm -hmm. you know, speaking uh, with, right? Mm -hmm. So that is like philosophically what the internet is too. It's a it's an agreement of a communications protocol. So if you understand the language, right, and if you, like, which is say, if you have the capabilities of making the sounds, or in the internet's case, right, emitting the electrical signals in a certain way, then you can be part of the internet. And the thing that I think is mind-boggling for some folks, because we don't experience the internet in this way, is that anyone can do this. It is not about being a massive corporation or a government or a genius inventor or anything like that, right? If you have a computer with what we call a TCP IP stack, right? Pieces of software basically that know how to emit the electrical signals in the order that the internet agrees to communicate with, right? In mm -hmm. the English language of the internet, if you will, mm -hmm. then you can connect a node up to the internet. That's what made it so exponentially, that's what made it grow so exponentially fast and what made it and what makes it so uh, potentially, right? Potentially accessible. Mm -hmm. So you need those computers. You also need to know a little bit about how to configure that software, right? But it's actually not particularly difficult to do. And so the important takeaway is that every single part of the internet, by definition, is an agreement of some variety. So we can look at like the super, super foundational levels of like the ethernet protocol and like connecting a wire from one computer to another, right? Mm -hmm. That is they, the, the, those, if you connect two computers with a wire, they can speak to each other. They can send data across that cable. They can write, share files or whatever you want to do with them because they understand the same language. You build that up from one layer uh, on top of another. They all speak those, those different protocols. And because they all know what to do with that information, they can talk to each other. Right? And so when we talk about what the, the internet and understanding both how it is resilient and also how it is fragile, this is the core concept to get, which is to say, when you are trying to speak to people you don't know, right? In other words, computers that you don't necessarily have any pre-existing relationship with or knowledge of, then you're going to need to do this through either intermediaries, right? Like other computers, or you're going to need to have some 
measure of trust in the environment in which you find yourself. So in the physical world, this is like if you get bad directions, right, while you're uh, driving on, you know, a country road that you've never been on before, then you're not going to end up in the place that you <laughs> right. intend. Yeah, right. And computers have the same problem. If I send you, right, via like a spoof DNS query to the wrong place, right, you're going to end up at a place that you don't necessarily intend to be. And that can be a dangerous situation. So that's both the resiliency and the weakness of the mm, internet. Right. That everybody has the capacity to sort of like insert themselves at many of these levels, right, of these layers of this complex system and kind of do what they will. I think like actually a really great example of that recently were all the uh, the BGP hijacks uh, that were yeah, happening to the crypto right. sites lately, right? When you, so a BGP, right, the Border Gateway Protocol is this, is this part of the internet that, that informs routers who owns what slices of cyberspace of cyber territory cyber areas right and of course you can add right your own you can claim your own little little space of the cyber world if you will mm -hmm. of cyberspace right literally a metaphor of land because it is far more vast than physical space at least on the earth maybe not the whole universe but the right. earth but it also right is simply a claim and someone else can make a similar claim or change the belief of others about who belongs in that space. And so that makes it very resilient because a lot of people can have sort of like their fingers in the pie, right? Yeah. But it also makes it dangerous because you have to trust those actors. So a lot of cybersecurity is around understanding roots of trust, which is not that different from the physical world. And this fundamentally makes the internet really flexible and that flexibility also can be one of its one of its security shortcomings. So I think I would say that is the most important thing, especially in the context that we're talking today of digital security and cyber warfare. That's probably the most important thing to take away if you've never thought of the internet in that in that way before, right? It's it's that it is really just an agreement that a lot of people have knowledge about how to interact with. And the more knowledge you have about it, right, the more you can do with it because it is just a agreement of how we're talking to each other and then making claims to one another. I really, really enjoy talking with those guys from the Tech Learning Collective. You should definitely check out some of the courses. You could take them online. Uh, they're really not very expensive, and they're quite, quite good. By the way, there will be links in the show notes to all the original episodes that these links are from, at least for the ones that were public. So you will be able to jump to those episodes, and within those episodes, find all the links to everything you need associated with those if you're interested. So this next clip is a little bit about hardware hacking and electronics and kind of how I got into it and a discussion with Joe and I. Joe is from HackerBox.com. I met him at DEF CON 29, and he and I worked feverishly together over the last year to put together the Amulet of Entropy, which was our indie badge for DEF CON 30, which was quite the success and an amazing, amazing project. And so to celebrate that, I had him on the show. We talked about entropy and, and why it's so important in cryptography. But we started out talking about why electronic hacking is so fun for us and kind of how we got into it. And, you know, even how we try to expose our kids to it. And sort of as a side reason that I'm playing this is because I think this is really something that a lot of people could get into and have a lot of fun doing. And so anyway, without further ado, here's, here's a little snippet of Joe and I talking about how we got into hardware and electronics hacking. To be hacking is more like being a, a tinkerer, someone who putzes around with stuff and takes things apart and puts them back together in new and interesting ways, or you know, takes bits and pieces from a whole bunch of stuff and then turns around and makes something new out of that. 
for me, that's what got me into electrical engineering. That is when I was a kid and, and I'll be interested to know if you had something similar, but when I was a kid, I, when I ever got any kind of a toy that had anything electric in it whatsoever, sometimes even before it finally broke down, sometimes I would be the one that would break it first to pull out that led, to pull out that little bulb, to pull out the little motor, the little DC motors. And I had my power supply. I had a train, a train system, and it had this little rheostatic power supply. You plug one into the wall and it had DC output from these two terminals. And so <laughs> that was my power supply. And I would use that to try to power up these things in new and different ways. And like I used to do models. So I'd, I'd take like a plastic model. I remember I did a Pontiac Fiero. I don't know why I liked the Pontiac Fiero. But I, I took these little rectangular LEDs and I put them where the, the brake lights would go. And I put, I got some little plastic fiber optic and, and, and using a hot pin, I put a hole in the dashboard where the turn signals would go so I could put little green turn signals on there. And, and that to me was hacking. And that's how I ended up basically getting into electrical engineering. Do you have a story like that from your childhood? How did you know you wanted to get into this stuff? There was almost no word in that entire description you gave that didn't apply to me. <laughs> <laughs> I also had a DC train power supply that I used for lots of things. And, you know, you mentioned taking the LED out of things. It took me a long time to realize why, you know, something we deal with every day now is LEDs have to have current limiting resistors. You, mm-hmm. you know, you take you take a nine volt or five volt or <laughs> even a three volt power supply and just put it on an LED and it's going to burn up. Right. right. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I just love playing around with all those things. And, you know, and you mentioned models. I remember taking a plastic, you know, glued up Tyco glued model of uh, Godzilla and using backlighting to light it up. Mm. But all we had that didn't burn up was 120 volt uh, Christmas lights. And I remember, you know, the causing a problem in my house <laughs> and, and just doing stuff like that, you know, and even when I was uh, probably still only about 11 or so, I remember my my mom always getting very concerned when I start when I when I started soldering because mm. I was probably around 11 when I got my first soldering iron from Radio Shack. And I, you know, she was very concerned that I was going to make a fire or melt something, you know, yeah. a vinyl floor yes. or, so, or whatever. I don't I don't know exactly what she was thinking other than that. You know, I had to be very careful to not upset my household with my uh, my hardware hacking. <laughs> yes. As, I, as my kids were growing up, I had two daughters, and uh, I wanted to kind of expose them to these things. And so what I would have them do, we had electronics around the house that got old or we were going to give away or donate. And instead, I'd take a couple of these, like, for instance, like an old DVD player. And we would take it apart. And I would just set it in front of the girls. And I'd say, here's a couple screwdrivers that should work for you. Just start taking it apart. <laughs> take the cover, you know, and so they look around, find where the screws were, find the, the right, you know, size screwdriver, start taking the, taking them out and pulling things off. And as we go through it, I'd explain, okay, here's what this is. That's what this motor is. See this thing right here. That's the laser that's actually reading the, the disc as it, as it's spinning around on this DC motor that's in there. And, you know, this is the backside of that display that's in the front and here's the buttons and here's the wires that come from those buttons. And, you know, it was just a great learning experience. It, it, it was a lot of the same stuff I did when I was a kid. And, and one of the one of the discoveries I made as a kid, and is that, for example, a speaker can be a microphone because all it is, a microphone and a speaker are really just transducers, and and they take sound pressure and turning it into electricity, or vice versa. And I, I think I did it by accident. I think I was messing with a microphone and messing with a speaker, and I think I hooked it up backwards. And I'm like, wait a minute, that speaker just acted like a mic. <laughs> and so, anyway, those are just you know, those are some of the fun experiences I had growing up, and I tried to you know expose my daughters to some of that as they grew up. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I, I, I have three little kids and I do that sort of stuff with them. In fact, I've showed them how, cause they, they, they do Lego robotics and I've showed mm. them how, you know, the Lego motor is also a generator. 
Right. You can you can put electricity into the motor and it spins and then couple that with a gear to another motor. It spins that motor and then electricity comes out of the other side. And and, and that's fascinating, right? It show, shows in a way the conservation of energy and it shows how, you know, all of these things that seem complicated often break down to something simple and that the basic principles that make one thing work often are the same things that make many other things work. Yeah. And I guess that's the engineer in me too. I mean, and, you know, <laughs> and obviously we're birds of a feather here. I'm not sure how much of the audience will agree with this, but I mean, that, that discovery and figuring those things out and actually seeing it and applying it myself is what really just thrills me. That's why I'm an engineer. So I guess that's not surprising. Right. And that, and that uh, circling back, that's the perfect answer to the, what is a hacker? I mean, if you're passionate about that stuff and love finding that and want to show it to other people and use it to do something new, that's hacking in, in, in my book. Yeah. So. All right. This next clip is from an interview I did with Anthony Collette, and it was titled Tomatoes and Telegraphs. And that should tell you a lot about how different this episode was from many of the others. And that's why I picked it uh, for the for the best of, because we had some really amazing discussions that you would think would have nothing to do with security and privacy. Uh, and yet they did. And one of the things we talked about was the invention of what's called the one-time pad. And the one-time pad is something you would use to encrypt something uh, in a way that's if done properly is almost impossible to crack because it's a, it's a one-time use encryption basically. And it involves taking some random symbols, combining them with your plain text of the thing you're trying to encrypt. And the output is such that unless you have the one type pad, the key that lets you remove those symbols, like subtract them back and get the original plain text back, you really can't figure it out. But where did the one time pad come from? It turns out, it's a really, really old concept that dates all the way back to the California gold rush and using the telegraph to communicate between banks in a secure fashion. So let's turn it over to Anthony and explain the origin of the one-time pad. So if you wind back the clock to 1848, so it's January in 1848, and it's, we're in California. And there's a guy and he's building a sawmill, a lumber mill for someone on a piece of land in California. And the lumber mill is using a, a, a river to power it. And uh, while he's walking around one day, he notices some shiny stuff on the ground and he picks it up and he says, huh, well, this is shiny. This, this might be gold. Well, it could also not be gold. So he and the owner of the land tested and oh my gosh, this is gold. What's the deal? Well, that's the start of the California gold rush. And eventually they're going to extract billions of dollars of gold from the land and off the surface of the land and also from mining. So hundreds of thousands of people descend on California. And there's one guy in New York who's a banker, a young guy. And he says, I don't think I want to be a miner, but I want to sell stuff to miners. So he opens a mercantile or a general store. He leaves New York, travels to California, starts selling all this stuff to any scruffy would-be miner that shows up. And then the, the successful miners are saying, hey, I've got a problem. I'm finding gold. What do I do with it? You can only put so much gold in your pockets. Mm. So this mercantile fellow starts providing gold storage services to these miners and these and other financial services. And all of a sudden, this becomes so, so successful, he turns his mercantile into a bank. Mm. And the bank becomes one of the largest in Sacramento, and Frank Miller, the guy who invents the one-time pad, Frank Miller's father is a senior officer of this bank. So young Frank Miller, the guy who invents uh, the one-time pad, 
He goes off to Yale for a year. He enters the military. He's involved in military intelligence. He's involved in the investigation of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. And then eventually he finishes up his military obligation and he comes home to his family in Sacramento and he joins his dad there at the D.O. Mills Bank as a junior bank officer. So now, now we're up to 1866. So there he is, our newly minted junior bank officer. <laughs> and what is he using to conduct business on a day-to-day -day basis? He's using something called telegraphic codes. So it's really not possible to understand the one-time pad and how it was first invented unless you have a, a little bit of a familiarity with these telegraph codes because when Frank Miller invented the one-time pad, he invented it to be used only with a telegraphic code. Hmm. Everything else you see on the internet is not what Frank Miller ever intended. So there's a, a really great fellow named Stephen Bellavin from Columbia University. And so he's written pretty much the definitive article about telegraph codes, and we can probably give a, a link to that. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge part of our information security history that we've forgotten. For over 100 years, they, these codes were in use for like 180 years, but their heyday was about a, a 100 years between the 1840s and the 1940s. So these telegraphic code books were everywhere. They were ubiquitous. Every business used them. If you were in live theater, you had a version of a telegraphic code oh. for that. If you were a plumbing manufacturer, you had codes for that. If you were a law firm, you had a law firm telegraphic code. Oh. Newspaper reporters had their own telegraphic codes. Like every industry had its own telegraphic code and everybody used it. And that's how people communicated over the internet of their day, which was the telegraph. So they used these telegraphic codes, which were everywhere, to lower the cost and then to secure the contents of their messages because people were really concerned that mm -hmm. they were sending these messages over the telegraph, but you couldn't secure them. And, and uh, the knowledge of how to use these telegraph codes was everywhere. This was just part of normal life and new telegraph codes were reviewed in the regular newspapers. Hmm. And telegraph codes were so familiar to people, ordinary people use them as after-dinner entertainment with their guests. <laughs> so, I mean, how familiar do you have to be with the technology yeah. before you start using it to get some laughs, right, and to have fun <laughs> with it? So this was a normal part of everyday life, but it's sort of forgotten. It's like we have yeah. this collective amnesia about them, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so if we go back to our our newly minted junior bank officer, Frank Mills at his bank, which is storing gold and conducting business as a regular bank and is a very big, successful bank. So he would have used these telegraph codes every day in his business because you're a bank, right? You're sending payment instructions over the telegraph. You're conducting business over the telegraph and you want to do that in a secure way. And so Frank Miller he invented this customized telegraph code for the banking industry. And then he said, I'm going to add an extra layer of security on top, which was the one-time pad. So this idea of adding something to the telegraph code wasn't new, but that idea had some weaknesses. But Frank Miller looked at those weaknesses and he, he found a way to overcome them. Like it was like, a, like just a flash of inspiration. So what he said was, all right, when we send a telegraph message, we're going to add something to the codes that we transmit over the telegraph. Well, if what we add 
is completely random and we only use it once and never use it again, that's going to give us some extremely strong security. And I don't think he ever said, I've just invented the world's one and only completely secure means of communication. I don't think he ever said that. He knew what he had created was extremely strong. And when the New York Tribune reviewed it, they said, this is the strongest hmm. telegraph code we've ever seen. So people recognized that it was something unique and something special. But what he was after was a, a telegraph code and security system that any bank could use to conduct business with any other bank. And that's what he created. Because you know the Wells Fargo's, Wells Fargo banks had their own system that they used, and the Chase banks had their own internal systems. But he created the system that any independent bank could use to communicate with any other bank. And then he added this one-time patch at the top of it, and he got, he got more than he bargained for because he invented what is proven to be the only completely secure means of communication. Next up, I've got an interview with Seth from Seth for Privacy. He just goes by Seth. And he is a true expert in cryptocurrency. And so I did an episode on Cryptocurrency 101 earlier this year to learn more about cryptocurrency. It was going so crazy. And it's still quite relevant. And I... I, I think what we lose sight of, there's so much news on cryptocurrency, it's tied to, you know, ransomware, or it's tied to these crazy speculators and, and Bitcoin bros and, 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 and all the scandals and whatever. But at, the, at its heart, it's so much more than that. And I think that gets lost in, in the news coverage. So I thought it would be a good time to bring this back. And, and so I asked Seth to kind of explain why we need cryptocurrency and, and, and why it's so important. What problem is cryptocurrency trying to solve? So it really depends on what cryptocurrency you're talking about and, and who mm. you're talking to, because really it can serve many different purposes. I think if we look back at why it seems like Satoshi kicked off Bitcoin and the focus is around that, I think we see a lot of people wanting to separate money from the state and mm. seeing a lot of the issues. I mean, he created Bitcoin in 2008 and, and released it in 2009 and um, I think tied a lot into the financial crisis that happened around mm. that time. And so I think he saw it and, and people still see it as this way to, to take the control of money away from the state, to stop giving governments the ability to do whatever they want mm. with not only our money, but also the money supply itself, mm. um, not allowing them to just print money whenever they want, not allowing them to spend as much money as they want, but also allowing people to have financial freedom in the sense of being able to spend how they see fit and when they see fit. And ultimately, a lot of the, the principles of cash from the method of exchange aspect of cryptocurrency, cash is actually really the, the target. Um, like in Monero, a lot of the times, the, the way that I pitch Monero is that it's digital cash because cash has a lot of great aspects. It's, it's instant finality. You just hand it to the person and you're done. You can't do anything to charge back or anything like that. Mm. Obviously, cash is, is very, very private can be completely anonymous, depending on obviously how you do the transaction, but it's a very good method of exchange. So we a lot of cryptocurrency aims to kind of emulate the aspects of cash but in a digital format, because obviously the main pain point with cash is if you're ordering something on Amazon and you want to ship to your house, sending them cash in an envelope or something <laughs> is not going to be a, a fun way to transact. I don't even I doubt you can even do that, but <laughs> even if you could, you wouldn't want to be just sending them wads of cash every right. every few days when you order something. So having a, a digital form of that that retains that that anonymity, that privacy, um, that finality is a is a powerful thing. 
but ultimately also it really allows this this free flow of commerce and, and economy and allows this uh, a building up of a circular and parallel economy outside of the state's control necessarily. And this isn't something that you only need in, in states that are tyrannical or authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Um, these can be things that are, are vital even in uh, relatively free states, especially I think as we've seen a lot of countries kind of shifting towards authoritarianism, um, having a way to be able to, to store value and, and spend without permission and without censorship is a, a very powerful tool. And, and this can be a powerful tool for donations. It can be a, lo- a lot of different ways it can be used um, to enable things that wouldn't be possible without cryptocurrency. But I think the other really big use case is a, a store of value similar to gold, but with the benefits of being a, a digital currency. So a lot of people have talked about kind of the, the store of value properties of gold in the past and how it has been used for that for thousands of years at this point, um, but the store of value and a method of exchange for a lot of time, but obviously not a method of exchange anymore uh, for good reason. Right. But being able to have a, a digital currency that can emulate some of the store of value properties of gold, like a very low inflation rate, like fungibility, where where any kind of piece of gold is equal to another in value, obviously depending by weight. Those kind of aspects that make gold a, a powerful store of value, bringing those into the digital world, again, have a lot of those benefits. Just like bringing cash into the digital world is immensely powerful for making payments, bringing gold into the digital world and having a, a store of value that can emulate those things. And again, that's outside of the reach of the state. It can't be confiscated, also just easy to transfer. So if mm. you have a store of value that you can easily transfer to someone else, it's much more powerful than trying to ship them a gold bar or transfer a million dollars in gold or something like that. So there's a lot of different pieces that go mm. along with it. But ultimately, I think the essence of it is to give back financial freedom and self-sovereignty to the individual to kind of leverage self-responsibility and taking ownership into your own hands and giving you the tools to be able to do that, whether or not you have the state's permission. So if you're in a a great country, awesome, it can still be a valuable tool. If you're in an authoritarian country, it could be a a life-saving tool. Uh, It could be something that is is literally life and death. It can aid you when you're fleeing from a a country that's oppressive and fleeing across the border. All you have to do is memorize this this 12 or 24-word seed phrase, and you can have all of your wealth purely stored up in your mind just through memorization, which is a, a crazy concept, but mm. a massive leap forward over trying to smuggle jewels or gold or something like that over the border. And I think we we can think about some of this. And there's been a lot of interesting news coming out of Ukraine with refugees mm-hmm. fleeing what's happening in Ukraine and fleeing across the border and carrying their wealth with them through cryptocurrency. And it's become a, a powerful tool there. So I think there's a lot of different value. Ultimately, it comes down to the things that that you need out of it. But there's a lot of a lot of just giving back financial freedom and self sovereignty to people rather than resting that solely with the state itself. All right. Next up, I had the opportunity to interview Nate Wessler. He had was originally, I think, with the EFF or maybe it was ACLU or both. <laughs> I can't remember now. I've talked to him several times. He's a really great guy. And we were talking about stalking and, and some kind of legal issues. And this is this will be the first clip that I've played from my private podcast for the patrons. And so after the interview, I save some extra time. I tell my guests, I, I want to set aside some extra time where I'll ask them some other questions that were not directly related to the topic at hand. But, you know, while I have you, let me, you know, ask you some interesting questions that I think my audience might find interesting. And so one of the most interesting things for me about Nate Wessler is that he successfully argued a case about privacy in front of the Supreme Court. And I had to ask, I had him, so I had to ask him what it was like 
to present a case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And here's what he had to say. You were argued a case in front of the freaking Supreme Court. So I've got to ask, what is what is that like? You know, what is it like to what's the process? You know, how does it feel? What's what's your, what is that experience like? Yeah, it's um, it's about as high stakes as it gets as a lawyer. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's a lot, um, a lot of preparation, uh, a lot of pressure, but a lot of potential too. you know, I, I argued the Carpenter case when I was just seven years out of law school, which is not what I expected to be doing seven years out <laughs> wow. of law school. Yeah. Um, but the the kind of stars aligned and I, I just had developed a lot of expertise in this very narrow question yeah. of, of cell phone location history. But I, uh, you know, as a really collaborative team team effort to draft the briefs. Mm. And at the end of the day, the, the briefs are much more important than the arguments, right? Mm. That's like a full set of arguments that we're making are the written ones. And we had a big team internally. We had our co-counsel, the criminal defense lawyer who'd represented Mr. Carpenter up through the trial court onto appeal. Uh, we were working with a, a very talented Supreme Court litigator who um, co-runs a Supreme Court litigation clinic at Stanford Law School, uh, who, who's done a lot of Fourth Amendment in the digital mm. age litigation. So we really had some um, brilliant, talented, experienced folks in the room, and uh, spent a long time through many, many drafts, you know, honing our arguments in the written pieces. Um, but then I, I was the one who had to prepare for the oral argument, <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, you know, devoted a couple of months largely to preparing. Um, and really, it's a process of, you know, making sure we know exactly what we want to convey. So figuring out what are the affirmative messages I want to want to be able to pass along and then anticipating all the questions you're going to get. Uh, and the Supreme Court, you know, it's nine justices and they have a lot of questions and they generally are not shy about jumping in with those questions. Mm. And so, you know, you have to expect that you may, you know, you're going to get questions about every hardest hardest issue, right? Mm. All the kind of hypotheticals, right? right? This is the rule you want, but what's that going to mean for this other kind of data? Right. You know, what's the line you want to draw, right? right, like right. In this case, there was a request for five months of cell phone location history and a second request for a week. So answering all those kind of line drawing questions um, and then being able to you know, really have firmly in mind exactly what I wanted to say on each of those questions and then know how to pivot to the broader point that I'm trying to leave the court with. And the balance in arguments in general in front of judges, but certainly in the Supreme Court, is to, you always want to be responsive, right? Like they're running the show, they're yeah. the judges, you want to answer their questions, but you also want to make sure you leave them with your strongest argument, your strongest points and help, uh, you know, redirect the conversation to the extent possible to the ground you want to be on to help them see what we're actually trying to convey. So um, so I did a whole series of moots, uh, meaning like practice sessions with lawyers uh, yeah. pretending to be judges, yeah. uh, like moot court sessions, essentially. Um, a lot of kind of running through hard questions, honing the responses, uh, and then got to the argument day. Um, you know, I've done a, a fair amount of arguments in federal court and, and some in state courts. So no, you know, not a new experience in that sense, but um, have definitely never been as on edge as, yeah. as in the hours leading up to it. Um, then you get in the courtroom and it's, you know, the Supreme Court courtroom is um, it's a very tall room. But it's not a very large room, kind of back to front or side to side. And it's um, it's packed with spectators, particularly for a higher profile case like this one. And so the arguing lawyers are you know, up at counsel table and then there's a podium very close to the justices. So mm -hmm. it's really, a you know, you have all these spectators behind you, very, like really packed in. So they want to get as many people to see the highest court in the land right. as possible. But then, you know, you're just like, you're just up front in kind of this little bubble, like feet from the deciders, the, you know, mm. the most influential judges in the country. So it ends up being, you know, this kind of weirdly intimate experience at the end of the day. And 
it's uh, typically 30 minutes per side. The court uh, at the very start of the argument added 10 minutes per side um, hmm. for this case, which is unusual, but um, because it was such a kind yeah. of naughty set of issues and, yeah. and so high profile. And so uh, you're up there going back and forth with the justices for that time. And then you sit down and then it's out of your hands. So Nate's the only person on the show today who's going to get a double feature. Uh, I'm actually going to do a clip now from the actual interview with Nate, where we were talking about stalking and facial recognition and how it's being used and abused. Uh, We talked about Clearview AI, which is the company that has been scraping social media accounts, gathering literally billions of face pictures uh, from everybody around the planet and assigning names to those pictures and then has an app where you can take a picture of somebody and say, who is this? And if that person is anywhere on social media, this app should say that's who that is. Anyway, so there's some really interesting anecdotes about how police have abused their you know, facial recognition systems in their efforts to find the bad guys. So let's go back to Nate one more time. Well, and there was even one weird case I heard that <laughs> made the news because I think it involved a, a famous actor, and I'll probably get the actor wrong. But there was a case where they were the the, the police were looking for a suspect, and they had a drawing of the suspect. I think uh, an artist rendering, and it looked like Nicolas Cage or something like that. W- w- Woody Harrelson. I Woody. know that. Yes, yes, you're so so close, ever so close. Yep. <laughs> So tell tell us about that story because it's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, in, incredible. This was um, there was a report that the um, the Georgetown Law School Center on Privacy and Technology put out where they got records from New York. This was the, an NYPD uh, operation where they yes they had a a really low quality photo of somebody. I don't know what the crime was. It might have been you know uh, someone at a convenience store who stole something. I, I can't remember, but they had a photo that they tried to run, like a still from a surveillance camera. They they tried to run through their face recognition system. It wasn't, wasn't Clearview, it was their NYPD's own system. They tried to run it through, didn't work because it wasn't high quality enough or who knows, the you know, number did, just didn't spit back a reliable match. So then yet the officers are sitting there looking at this photo and they say, you know who this guy looks like? Looks like Woody Harrelson. So they go online, they get a photo of Woody Epping Harrelson and they run that through the system. That's not what the system is supposed to do. This system's not a celebrity lookalike contest. I mean, it's really incredible and it's, it's hilarious, but then you remember, this is the police who are about to arrest somebody right. based on this not so celebrity lookalike match, right? You, you know, other cases, uh, other investigations that the Georgetown folks uncovered where police didn't have a photo, they had a composite sketch, right? They had some police sketch artist who asked, you know, they ask a witness a bunch of questions. Right. You've seen this on, on police procedurals, right? right? And they come up with this picture that like looks kind of like the person. Face recognition systems are not trained on composite sketches. That's not a photo. They're trained on photos, right? You now have li- a line drawing that you're going to put in. <laughs> something looks kind of like it. Uh, and so you have police just making it up. You know, the police also taking photos that, that are not of sufficient quality because they're at an angle because the suspect's eyes are closed mm. and using Photoshop to either rotate the photo oh, wow. and fill in the hidden half with a mirror image uh-huh. or this Georgetown report found police taking photos of suspects with closed eyes, going online, finding photos of people with open eyes that seem to have like a relatively similar skin tone ish, right? Like models, right? Just mm-hmm. like photos online taking a screen grab wow. of the eye section of there and Photoshopping that on top of the closed eyes. So you had some open eyes, right? Wow. That's not how, like now no. you have a composite, right. a composite image, right? So all these, you know, off label, so to speak uses, which 
are not how the systems are trained, not how they're supposed to be used. But again, now you have police making very consequential decisions about who to investigate and who to arrest. And you know, the part of the what's what's really dangerous about this is that there's a lot of research out there about machine suggestibility, about how people inherently, as a cognitive matter, trust machine decisions. Oh, sure, right, right yeah. It's, right, it's you know the the computer said it, right. so it must be true. Right, like, you know, even people who kind of know, who've been told, who've been <laughs> trained, like computers have error rates, algorithms are best guesses, right? right, right. They're glitchy, they're programmed by humans, etc. Even if you know that. There's just a, right. a suggestibility bias yeah, yeah. when the com- computer tells you a thing. And so now you have the, the investigation going off in this direction based on what the computer said, which may implicate the wrong people, or it may involve, you know, kind of mass surveillance of a quality that maybe is accurate, but implicates our liberty interests, right? Turns us into something that is not the free and open society we expect, because now we're looking over our shoulder every moment because police are identifying us instantaneously. And a platform like Clearviews is the most chilling Manifestation of manifestation of that that danger, uh, you know, hooking Clearview up to real time or recorded video, yeah. would be tremendously dangerous and right. and really give a, a super chilling power to the police. This next story is one of my absolute favorites from this year, and <laughs> it only only could have happened at DefCon, and. I managed to get a second interview with Jeff Moss, the founder of DefCon, been doing it for 30 years. And I was trying to come up with some fun questions and something maybe hopefully he had not already heard a million times before. And he probably has heard variations of this, but somehow, some way, as we're talking about this, he recalled seemingly out of nowhere, an amazing story from DEFCON. And of course, DEFCON is the hacker conference. It's in Las Vegas every year. It's been going 30 years. I've been going only two years myself now, but I'm totally hooked. I'm planning to go every year. And it's got an amazing history. If you don't know anything about it, it, even if you're not a hacker, watch the DEFCON documentary. And if you follow the the links in the show notes for this interview, you'll find uh, the links to that and more. But this was a story. And by the way, trigger warning, there there is some cursing here in the in as Jeff tells the story. There's also a lot of background noise because we were at a big conference, right? So, you know, we were trying to find a quiet space and it's kind of hard to do when there's 30,000 people uh, just outside your door. But anyway, I sat down with Jeff and I, I, you know, I wanted to know what was the closest that DEF CON ever came to dying, to, to being shut down. And he did not disappoint with this story. What's the closest... DEFCON ever came to not happening? Was there ever an existential threat to DEFCON other than, I guess, the pandemic might be one? The Pan- clo- pandemic was pretty bad. We've had some pretty big screw-ups with like badges missing, equipment stolen, but I think the biggest one was always we might get shut down in mid-conference. And there was a year, <laughs> there was a year, that's right, we were at the Monte Carlo. The, that was a pretty terrible year. So we're at the Monte Carlo and... Um, <clears throat> Same thing, new hotel, didn't know what to make of us. We were like the first conference that the sales team booked, not really knowing. They're just excited to book a conference for its new property. And then they catch on. (laughs) And then we start getting calls from the sales team like, hey, you know, what's going on? And the vice president wants to understand, and the, you know, hotel manager. And then that gets to the show. And the week of the show, our sales team that had been supporting us, they're all on vacation. They're like, peace out, you know, while this is going on. And we're at the show, and things were kind of rocky with the communications we'd been getting from the, from the hotel. And I'm sitting down the night before the conference is happening, 
and there's um, some guys from New York from the 2600 scene. Emmanuel Goldstein, actually, the editor of 2600 okay. there, and we're we're all talking. And this one phone freak here guy's like, "Yeah, you know, if the hotel gives you trouble, um, just let me know. I'm in their phone PBX, and I'll shut down their phone system." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, um, well, so far things are going pretty well, so I'll just let you know." But good, good to know. Right. Well, not to be undone. Somebody says, like, okay, cool. But if you're not getting the answers you like, we're in the power system in the surrounding area. So if they give you trouble, just let me know, and I'll shut down this block's power, and we'll just turn off power to the casino. Oh, my God. I'm like, great, fantastic, good to know. Yeah, so if there's a giant emergency, I'll let you know. You know. And it was like... Right. Totally. I forget about that. You know, just move on. We're doing the conference. Well, back then, DEF CON was a little bit more crazy, a little bit more misogynistic, a little bit. But there's always a group of, like, foreigners and some locals, and they would always um, have stripper con. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. And that eventually, that went away a couple years later. So what was going on that we didn't realize was that there's all these very specific rules on what you can and can't do as a stripper. Okay. There's certain moves that are illegal. There's certain things you can't do, lewd things you can't, okay. you know. So it was all very, like, performative. But if you crossed any line for a certain nudity or whatever, that okay. was not really a performance anymore. That was mm. something else. Mm-hmm. And then you'd be... So what they didn't realize, nobody realized, is they'd figured out where... The hotel had figured out where StripperCon was going on. They'd installed hidden cameras in this roof. Oh they'd lined the back hallway with... with police or their own casino police and they were waiting for the strippers to do something wrong oh, wow and they're just queued up ready oh to go God. and so i'm wandering around the space waiting the next day the conference was starting so i'm wandering around the space and i see all these people in one of the closed off conference rooms that nobody's supposed to be in so i go in like hey what is what is going on and they're like oh. <laughs> so i go in they had all these air some of these air walls were half up and i'm looking over the like oh, there's a stripper con happening in the middle of my hotel space. Like, how fantastic. You know, just what I need. And I look over to my right, and there's a guy with a huge camera on his shoulder. It's like some international press who figured this out, and he's set up, and he's recording it. And we were perfectly lined up watching this. And all of a sudden, she must have done some move that was not approved because she spins around on her back, twirls around in some maneuver, and immediately... Between her legs, as you're looking down, the doors open up and all the oh all the feds or law enforcement, whoever, all starts streaming in. Oh, my God. And the guy with the camera is perfectly lined up. <laughs> got this beautiful shot of all this thing like a movie. And you can see this happening. And he just starts stepping back <laughs> further and further. And I turn around like, I'm gone. Oh, wow. So I leave. Well, the girls only know that they were hired by DEF CON. Oh, God. Which they weren't hired by us. They're by some randos that were... Right. But, but they don't know any better. They sure. just know they're... So now, Las Vegas PD, hotel, everybody's looking for me. Oh, God. And so I'm on stage now. No, I'm sorry. I misspoke. It was the... Must have been Friday night because I had to go be on Hacker Jeopardy. So I'm on stage at Hacker Jeopardy. And all of a sudden, all my goons come running in because we've been monitoring the hotel radio frequency. And so we know what the hotel's been up to. Sure. And all of a sudden, it's like, go find Jeff. 
So they swarm around me, ensconce me. They're listening to the radios. They have pro, we have people everywhere. We know where the security teams are roaming and we dodge it like a video game and you know, hide in the barrel and, you know, and we make it to a hotel room. Now I'm in the hotel room and we're trying to figure out how bad is it? Like what's going on? So we've got people talking to the hotel. I'm just chilling out in this hotel room over at, uh, gosh, what was it? The Flamingo looking over at Monte Carlo and we're doing you know radio because a line of sight sort of between the two hotels and we're like okay it's not so bad but if it gets bad we'll smuggle you out in a car to like northern Nevada and you can fly home there you don't want to go to the airport if they're looking for you we're making all these crazy oh contingency God. plans and there's like the whole operation and I'm looking out the window and all of a sudden the power goes out at the hotel <laughs> oh no like the whole block goes dark I'm like holy shit and they're like okay, we'll put you in the trunk of the car, you know, and like, we've got a plan, let's do this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So what, what, what happened? And so we're like, well, it's like it's 2 o'clock in the morning now, and we're pretty fucking stressed out. Let's just, they don't know where we are. Let's go to sleep, and in the morning, we'll just see how bad it is, and then we'll decide. Okay. So we wake up in the morning, and everything's fine. <laughs> the lights are on, everything's okay. Everything's fine at the hotel. Huh. Like, so what happened was random power outage. Oh, no way. <laughs> Completely random. And so I go back to the guy and I'm like, what the fuck did you? And he's like, oh, I can't do that. I was just fucking with you. <laughs> and he just didn't want to be outdone by the guy who said he was in the phone system. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. It's just, but the, oh, it was like so stressful. Turns out like the... The, the company that had the strippers talked to the people. I mean, right. You know, and it all got figured out on the back end and everything was fine. But for that moment of chaos, oh it looked like it was a world ending. Yeah. So that is a great story. <laughs> it was epic. Oh, my God. So you can imagine after that, we made absolutely sure no stripper con. We're not, you know, like if somebody's yes. going to do it, it's not going to be in our space. It's not going to be in our, you know, we can't have the liability or not. Not our deal. One of the things I really just love about doing this podcast is I've had the opportunity to meet and interview some really, really amazing people that, that have fantastic stories and so much to tell. And Charles Petzold was one of them. He was kind of reluctant. He wrote a book called Code, which is actually different from the other one I talked about earlier, the one by Simon Singh. That's a great book. If you ever want to understand the history of computing and how all this stuff came to be about, it's a wonderful, wonderful book that explains the progression and walks you through from first principles, how computers are made and how they work at the very fundamental level. Anyway, so I had to pull a snippet from the interview with, with Charles, and this is him talking about the origins of, of software. Like, you know, we've talked about computers and, and how they were kind of mechanical, but eventually at some point we had to find some way to program them, to give them a stored set of instructions that they could go back and repeat to do things over and over again, and we could tweak over time to make them do something different. And like some of the other things we've already talked about earlier in the show, these concepts go a lot further back than a lot of people think they do. And I, I just find this fascinating. So here's a little snippet from that interview with Charles Petzold. To make something general purpose, it, we need the concept of software. We need the idea to program a computer. So when did we invent software? Like what's some of that early code look like? And uh, you know, what were the major evolutionary milestones of what we now can, you know, how we control and program computers? Yeah, well, software seems to have been invented again by Charles Babbage. And one of the things that he was influenced by was a silk 
weaving loom that had been invented by, can't remember his first name, Jacquard, in around the year 1800 in France. And originally when they were weaving patterns in silk, they had boys sitting on top of the loom pulling up the strings and stuff to, to get the pattern right. And he replaced that with a mechanism that was uh, triggered by holes punched in cardboard. And so that influenced also in the early, late 19th century, the system of taking the census devised by Hollerith, where hmm. code, people's uh, characteristics would be punched in, in holes in cards. These are called Hollerith cards that eventually evolved into IBM cards. Yeah. So Babbage, and this was in the 1830s, was familiar with the Jacquard loom. And so he figured that his computer could be run from holes punched in cardboard. That the holes would correspond to numbers and the holes would correspond to different operations. And the first actual computer program that we know of in print was uh, created by Ada Lovelace, who was translating an Italian article about Babbage's machines into English and adding her own commentary and uh, showed this this program. And uh, that's from 1840-something. In Atlan Turing's paper in the 1930s, you can see a computer programs that, that do certain things. And then for each of the computers built in the uh, 1830s, there were specific ways to program them. Conrad Zuza, who, who built a early digital computer in his parents' living room in Berlin, used old 35-millimeter movie film huh. and punched holes in oh, that wow. to, to trigger the computer. So a lot of it was uh, used that form of storing information of, of uh, paper tapes or, or the 35-millimeter the film. Eventually, they figured out that it was it would be best to event, put all the codes into memory along with the, everything else mm -hmm. so that it could run, run quite fast. But that's something that people probably don't think about is, you know, like memory wasn't always part of I mean, we think of it uh, as part and parcel of any computer today, but it was not always part of the computer. It was it was added uh, later. Was, yeah, memory and memory. There is uh, some early attempts to do memory were really bizarre. Because if you're, if you're trying to store, you can use these telegraph relays, as I show in the book, as I show in code, you can use these telegraph relays to, to store information. Um, you wire them up into, into circuits called flip-flops and they can store bits of information. But in order to store anything in something significantly large, you need a lot of them. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just, un, 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 <laughs> uh, it just gets to be unrealistic. So there were various techniques to store stuff in, in to store information. Uh, one was called delay line mercury, and you'd have these tubes of mercury, and you you would be able to store a bit from one end of the tube by tap by a mechanism that tapped it and create little pulses throughout the huh. mercury, which would be picked up at the other end and then circulate the bit back around so that it can be continually stored there. Huh. And uh, but. That was used for a while, and uh, didn't know that. Uh, yeah, the other thing that came to my mind as you're talking about this is player pianos and uh, music boxes. I mean, it's basically the same kind of thing. Yeah, the the player piano. I know a lot of people think of the player piano. The player piano is, was actually not invented until the late 1800s. 
It was quite a bit after the Chicard loom had, had established this idea of, of using cardboard with holes punched in it. Music boxes go back further. Prior to the Chicard loom, there were particularly from French inventors making these automata of these dolls that would move and do certain things. And uh, um, there was one that could could hold a pen and, and write something. And these were all internally programmed with a lot of complex mechanism and uh, something that would be akin to a computer program, maybe. Yeah, right. So it's it, this the history of this. I know people prefer histories where there's just one guy who has this amazing idea <laughs> and bing, it's there, right. you know? And that is, that is extremely rare, even, even with something like the light bulb. And uh, Americans think that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Well, it's a little more complex than that. And if you ask your English friends who invented the light bulb, they will not <laughs> tell you that Edison did it. The, the, one, the one invention that Edison made completely out of thin air, apparently, was, was uh, the phonograph. Mm. There was no precedent for that. And inc- inf- interestingly, it did not catch on at first. It was like an invention. It was one of those inventions that was too early for its time. Well, and that, in a sense, was another form of storage, right? It was an analog yeah. form of storage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Just a couple more clips before we quit. And this one is from uh, bonus content that I got from Jordan Wines, and he runs Capture the Flag tournaments, CTFs, which are hacker tournaments. The, these are hackers competing to find flags, and these flag the way you find these flags is you have to hack these systems. And as we were doing the interview, I was thinking in the back of my head, if I wanted to hack something and I wanted to employ some of the best people around to do it, I would set up a fake Capture the Flag and actually have them hacking the thing that I wanted them to hack on my behalf, basically. This would be what I would call doing an Ender's Game. And if you've never read the book Ender's Game or or seen the movie, and I can't remember actually how faithful the movie was to this point of the book, but basically they had these kids, they were were supposedly playing video games, and they were trying to find the ones who could fight best in in these supposed simulators uh, fighting off these aliens. And it turns out in reality, they were actually doing real fighting. They were remote piloting these, these craft. So that's the kind of the idea behind the, the Ender's Game thing here. So anyway, so it, for the bonus content with Jordan Wines, I asked him, it, has, has that ever happened? And he said, yeah, kind of did. <laughs> As you were talking about these war game CTS, I kept thinking to myself, man, if I were running one of these, I would totally do an Ender's Game, right? Like I would, if you've read the book, I would totally have them like... <laughs> I'm well aware. Here's your I, yeah, pretend yeah. thing, and then behind yeah. the scenes, I'd have them do real hacking for me. Has ever has that ever happened? It, it has, and well, let me let me think. Uh, I believe. Okay, I believe enough of this is public <laughs> that I can talk about it in a certain okay. way. I very rarely have to be be too, even though I did a lot of like actual clear work and stuff. Like that's just not mm-hmm. stuff that, that comes up. Um, so there was some research ironically at the company I was, was kind of tangentially involved in that we were at where Air Force Research Lab was, so that's why I say, I think this was fairly public. This wasn't like super undisclosed, but they actually ran kind of reversing crack me contests and they explicitly told people we're going to measure how you do this and we're going to learn we're, we're trying to design better like obfuscations and we want to measure some hard data and hard stuff, but we're going to sort of like make prizes and have you participate. So that was 
publicish, no. right? Um, and there's been there's there's another competition, for example, the um, obfuscated LVM. They called it the Grand Reversing Challenge, which is funny because DARPA has grand challenges, mm. right? Like that's the, like the terminology of the original grand challenge was the automotive self-driving cars mm. stuff that mm-hmm. like oh, literally right, was yeah. DARPA funded research that started like a lot of the, the, the groups and universities, which then went on to found the, the foundation of a lot of these companies are all doing self-driving stuff. Uh, fun fact, the, the government, requ- uh, DARPA in particular government, like that you can't use the word grand unless there's a prize pool of more than a million dollars. Oh, wow. Uh, that's actually where the word grand comes from in that uh, in that name. So if it's a cyber grand challenge, it means there's more than oh, a million wow. dollars okay. worth, of, worth, of, that. worth of prizes. So Tigris called themselves the Grand Reversing Challenge or something. And I was like, oh, don't do that. That's <laughs> uh, the grand, grand RE Challenge. So that was, again, a kind of a similar one where where people intentionally, in fact, actually the winner was an employee of mine, but uh, where they intentionally want to know how good can people solve this. The, the problem is contests like that I mean, it's actually, Bruce Schneier actually has an old, old thing why these are bogus, right? A company says, our thing is secure. We're going to pay you $1,000 if you hack into it or $10,000 prize if you hack into it. And it's almost always a sham. And you should never, ever trust people to market that way. Because one, it is marketing. Mm. It is not actually a real, actual, honest evaluation. There are domains, like cryptography is one in particular, where actual adversarial testing is really important to like robust validation. Product security is not one of them. And the people who are actually good at it cost way more than your prize pool anyways and are not doing it for free. And so you're just doing this to like advertise. And it's usually constrained in such a way that you can't win anyway. Like they're, they're, they're basically scams. And so you, you kind of see companies kind of, kind of doing that. The other closest thing to like interesting, like, oh, is this thing like actually Ender's gaming us or or, or arming in the simulation and and doing the real thing on the outside is there have been a category of CTF challenges that I find hilarious where if you just run a piece of malware that the organizers have given you on your real box, it's easier to win the challenge. What? Okay. So like, here's how it works. Like uh, one year it was done with like the actually interpreter. They actually had built a interpreter payload from Metasploit, right? You know, and and it, it would enumerate all your file shares, list files in your desktop, open and record audio from your mic for three seconds. It did a whole bunch of just really intrusive stuff. And then it would upload it all. And if you failed any of these checks, it would refuse to give you a flag. Now, if you just let it do this, eventually you would just get a flag. Oh, wow. Um, but it did all these things to make sure it wasn't a virtual machine, to make sure it wasn't, you had real files, you had older oh, data. Like wow. it actually did stuff to try to like, you can't just run me on a Blake Bear image or a fake VM or, you know. So you either just did it and ran it or you cracked and patched and figured out how to get past each stage of all these challenges, which was kind of a pain because it was packed and stuff. I love that. <laughs> I think it was hilarious because people would just straight up run the binary. Oh, that's funny. Um, so we had one that kind of modeled itself after that uh, at, at ShmooCon uh, for a couple of years. And then every time that's been done, nobody saves the data that I know of. Like you'd think like, oh, these are all people who work for security companies. They're probably taking all the data and they're going to do all and like, no, we're all too lazy. That's like, that's day and work and our hobbies. So every time that that's been done, as far as I know, the data was never actually saved. And I know several people oh, that's who run funny. Uh, challenges like that's that. That's really funny. Which is- all right, guys, there's one clip left here. And uh, I will say that this one is a little bit more esoteric. This is one of my Merlin's musings. Uh, bonus content and the the idea of Merlin's musings is it's more technical than some of the others and so you might just find yourself skipping these so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of sign off now and give you some last uh, couple things before we go and then if you find you're not that interested you can skip it so let me just say a couple things so the two contests I've got going on there's one giveaway with about two thousand dollars worth of prizes giving to five different people that's going to end the end of this month basically New Year's Eve 
And also I've got a patron promotion that is uh, both for new and existing patrons. And all you really got to do is you got to sign up for an annual service. Uh, so I sign up for an annual subscription until recently, actually, I only offered monthly. And it turns out that a lot of people want an annual. And so now that Patreon has graciously allowed me to provide that service. And this was some weird qualification that for a long time I didn't have. I don't know why, and they wouldn't tell me. But now I can offer annual subscriptions. And if you sign up for an annual service at the right level, you will qualify to get during the month of December, again, till basically New Year's Eve, uh, one of my super cool security enhancing dragon coin swag packs. So uh, if you want to find out about both of these things, you've got a couple weeks left. Uh, the first one, the giveaway, you can go to FDSD, that's Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, the initials, FDSD.me slash EP300. That'll give you the details of the giveaway. And if you go to FDSD.me slash coin promo, C-O-I-N-P-R-O-M-O. And of course, there's links in the show notes for both of these. It will give you all the details. All right, so let me set up this last clip and you could decide whether you could decide whether you want to hang on to, to hear this one or not. So I have always been kind of fascinated with this notion of steganography, which is hiding something in plain sight. It's not quite the same thing as encryption, and I'll get into that a little bit. And so I did a whole Merlin's Musings podcast on this subject. So on weeks like this, where I'm uh, doing a news-ish kind of week, not the interview weeks, uh, I will do kind of a random topic and it's either kind of a personal story. Like I talked about how I worked uh, as a co-op in the anti-submarine warfare group at Magnavox and we made sound that listened for submarines that I talked about kind of how that worked. That was one of my other Merlin's musings episodes. And sometimes I just pick a technical topic and I, you know, solicit ideas from my patrons and uh, just kind of go off on a topic. So here you go. Here's an abridged sample of one of my Merlin's Musings private patron podcasts. If you look up the, the source of the word, and of course you can do this on, uh, uh, on Wikipedia, and you'll see that it comes from uh, the Greek word steganographia, or I'm, I'm going to pronounce that wrong, steganographia, so what, let's say, which has the word steganos, meaning covered or concealed, and graphia, or graphia, meaning writing, so hidden writing, or concealed writing. So steganography is hiding something kind of in plain sight. And there's some really interesting examples given on Wikipedia, some of which I've read before uh, in a book called Code, uh, which is a wonderful book by Simon Singh. If you're interested in cryptography at all and the history of cryptography, it's really interesting. And you don't have to be uh, a serious math person or a serious cryptographer to enjoy it. There's a lot of historical value there. Going all the way back to Caesar and, of course, the Caesar cipher. Uh, and things like that. It's it's a fascinating book. So uh, one of the things it does cover in there, as I recall, is steganography. And, and one of the stories, uh, some of the stories it talks about there and that Wikipedia covers here uh, is this notion of hiding something in plain sight. So hidden ink, for example, invisible ink. That's a classic one where uh, you can't see it. You're looking at the paper and the paper probably has other words on it. But if you know how to reveal the hidden ink, then you can see the secret message. And one of the, you know, the ways that you did this when you were a kid uh, is you would get lemon juice and a toothpick and you could write a message on a piece of paper and lemon juice and then let it dry. And then when you give it to somebody uh, and they could have other writing on the page and to try to hide what you're doing, that's the steganography part. And then if they held it to a really warm source and caused the lemon juice basically to burn and get dark, it would reveal the hidden message. That's a form of steganography. Also in ancient Greece, uh, one of the examples there was uh, sending messages 
uh, on people's heads. They would, and this would take a long time, I would think. So I guess the messages weren't crucial or urgent, uh, but they would shave somebody's head, uh, write a message on their scalp, and then wait for their hair to regrow. And so then they'd march them right in. They could search them all you want. You wouldn't find the message on them. And then when they get to the intended recipient, the recipient would shave the person's head to read the message. And I guess, I don't know if it would be tattooed on or if they had Sharpies back then. (laughs) But, you know, they would have to also not somehow wipe away the message before they shaved their head. But there's other really interesting ones from from history, Uh, like Morse code. If you knew Morse code, you'd take a ball of yarn and you could, with knots in the yarn, you know, with dots and dashes, you could encode into the yarn uh, something in Morse code. And then you would take that yarn and then sew it into a sweater or something. And then knowing that you could get that sweater to somebody and if they knew how to deconstruct the sweater to get to that one piece of yarn, they could then use that piece of yarn to decode the Morse code and they'd have the message again. It's right there. It's right in front of you. It's, it's hidden in plain sight. Now, in modern days, since we have so much digital stuff, there's all sorts of fun and fancy ways you can do steganography. But the one I'm going to talk to you about today and the ones that Russians actually used to send control messages uh, to malware via Instagram images is encoding messages in a picture. And so here's how we would do this in a picture. If you break down a digital image, the most common way that it is encoded is with red, green, and blue pixels, just like your TV screen. And there's three colors there, red, green, and blue. And between those three, and if you vary the brightness of each of them, you can create basically any color. And if you look at an image, uh, you know, a square image, let's say it's a, let's say it's a thousand by a thousand pixels. And every pixel is represented by three values in red, green, and blue, an RGB value. And that's usually an 8-bit value. So there's 256 possible values. So an RGB pixel might look like 255,10,122, something like that, with for the R, G, and B, the red, the red, green, and blue values with 8 bits each. So that's 3 times 8, 24 bits per pixel. Now, if you kind of lop off the lowest significant bits of those values, if you if you took that 255 decimal value and converted that to binary, you could lop off the lowest bits. And so that might make the 255 be 254. Uh, that might make that 110 value be 111 or something like that. It might, you know, if you're if you're twiddling those lowest significant bits, it might you know, change the value a little bit. But if you think about it, I mean, you know, would the would the color of that pixel change that much if I just, you know, altered it by a, just a tiny bit? No, it wouldn't. In fact, you couldn't. You, I can tell you right now, you can't tell the difference. As a human looking at it, you can't see the difference. But a computer can. So if the computer knew what the original image was, it could figure out the difference in those last few bits and like, you know, would scan through that 1000 by 1000, if, you know, image rows and columns and go down each row and it would compare the value that was supposed to be there with the value that is actually there. And it could say, Hey, they're different. So let me record the differences. And if you record all those differences, you could in that thousand by thousand image have enough bits to write a message to somebody. So in that image that looks normal and you can't tell that it's changed actually contains a message. And I have done this with the image for today's show. And so with that little teaser, I will end the best of 2022. So obviously, if you're really interested in that, you become a patron, you will get the access to the full episode and you can 
play around with the image that I that I use some steganography on. And there's a lot more links that came with that. You could do this on your own. There's other great ways to do it. Again, that was the abridged version. The actual Merlin's music was about twice as long. Uh, but I just wanted to kind of focus on the one part. So anyway, thanks for tuning in, everybody. If you haven't already, please subscribe. If you get a chance, I would love to get some nice five-star reviews on Apple Music. That's where most people get their podcasts. That is a great place to do it. You don't even have to put you know, text with that. If you don't want to, you can just give a rating. That helps too. But leaving a textual review is always nice as well. All right, everybody. I hope you're having a great holiday season. Looking forward to it myself. Can't wait to see my family. Hopefully you're going to have some nice downtime with yours for the next couple of weeks. Enjoy your time together. Relax, take a break. I've got those really cool coupons. If you want to look that up, uh, go to fdsd.me slash coupons. It's a great way to help your friends and family to become more secure and private. And of course, the giveaway and the promotion. Check all of that out. Links are in the show notes. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.